Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You are now entering the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, a show that uncovers what's fact, what's fake, and what's fun in the crazy world of Pseudo-Archaeology. Welcome to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 95. I'm your new host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, and tonight we are talking about Chariots of the Gods and having a book review along with it. So why am I doing a book review of Chariots of the Gods for my first solo podcast? You know, this this book has been sort of done and redone and talked about lots and lots of times. You know, is there is there anything new to talk about here? And I think there really is. I think that it's really worthwhile to do a straightforward book review of Chariots of the Gods, right? Because the whole movement of pseudo-archaeology starts here. It starts with this book. Yes, there are earlier ones, but this is the one that really began this whole movement. Everything traces back to here. I mean, shows like Ancient Aliens mine this thing liberally for the themes and the topics that they do on their show. And they will even redo aspects of this book. They'll re-talk about some of the things in here. And so many, not just in the pseudo-archaeology community, real archaeologists talk about Chariots of the Gods all the time. They'll reference it, you know, as this crazy work. But my point on both sides, whether you're an archaeologist or whether you are a pseudo-archaeologist, how many of you have actually read it? And my guess is not that many, but never fear. I read it. So I thought we could spend this time going through the book and really learning chapter by chapter what it's about and learning the backstory to this book and really getting a good sense of it. Because if you're talking about the world of pseudo archaeology, you got to know chariots of the gods. So where, where to start? Well, historically, This book comes out in 1969. Now, the original publication is 1968, but it was originally published in German, right, by Eric von Deineken. And the English publication comes out a year year later in 1969. And in terms of what this book goes over, what a fantastic time to be published. I really think that... Chariots of the Gods benefited so much from the cultural ethos of 1969, right? You have this wave of like, hey, man, flower power, expand your mind, man, turn in, tune in and drop out, you know, the establishment, man, what's up with them, right? And so if you have that kind of vibe of where of where young people are, you know, saying, hey, the government controls everything, you got to you got to open up what your, your narrow thinking chariots of the gods fits perfectly into that world because chariots of the gods is going to say, yeah, don't, don't listen to those narrow archeologists. Open your mind a little, look at this, look at the possibilities, right? You don't need to read those dry archeology span reports. Just look at what's in front of your eyes. Aliens did it. You know, and and that that idea is so exciting in that way that you can see how it would it would catch fire in in that time. Now, you know, yes, of course, as we as we get into it, the this idea of ancient astronauts that that we'll parse later is is obviously ludicrous. But in terms of the, I'd almost say the historicity of chariots of the gods. I think it's. I think it's worth looking at in terms of a historical document of 1969 and and of how we're thinking 
1969. You can see how it just catches fire in that cultural moment, right? Now, when I thought about doing this, I was worried <laughs> about actually getting a copy because I was like, man, I can't give Eric Von Dyneken money. I can't buy a copy of Chariots of the Gods. I'm just adding to the problem. So I went on this journey to try and find a copy. And actually, I found a copy in, in the office of one of my mentors over at, at UCSB. She's off in the field right now. And I was looking through her books and she had a copy of Chariots of the Gods, you know, and I I had emailed her and said, hey, you know, make sure not to find any ancient aliens in the field because I have your main reference work, you know, and I just I just took it for a while and she understood. She let me she let me borrow it. So that's how I, I felt. OK. And actually, I was Googling Chariots of the Gods, too. And uh, it was it was listing for fairly expensive, like in the twenty dollar range, you know, and and I was like, man, I don't know if I can drop that on a copy of the Chariots of the Gods now. For those of you who may may not know, Chariots of the Gods, man, has sold, I believe it's 7 million copies and counting. So we can laugh and jest at Chariots of the Gods as much as we want. But how many real archaeology textbooks or real archaeology books, for that matter, have sold anything like that? Right. We are way behind. So Chariots of the Gods is doing some things right, you know, and we got to We want to analyze that. We want to know. We want to learn and get better at our craft as we go through the book and i have uh, an older copy right my mentor she had she happens to have a copy from the early 1970s and if you're wondering the the overall theme of chariots of the gods it actually has on the old cover underneath the main title it says was god an astronaut and that's actually the main idea of chariots of the gods i think sometimes it gets lost when people are talking about you know what it's about and some of the famous stories in it the overall theme is that aliens came to earth millennia ago and they would have come as astronauts right because they would have needed their own spacecraft and this kind of stuff so the idea is that aliens in their spacecraft as alien astronauts came you know whether it be 10,000 years ago, whether it be a million years ago, you know, whatever, whether they came several times, they came and they influenced humans in some way. Now, what is that way? There's all these different kinds of stories that we can get into, but that's the overall idea, okay, that astronauts who are aliens came and influenced us. And you can see, again, that 1969 feel there, right? 1969 is when we went to the moon. So not only do you have sort of a 1960s open your mind flower power aspect to share it to the gods, you also have that big influence of the space race in it too. So you meld those two together and chariots of the gods writes itself, right? That's what, that's what you see overall as you, as you read this book. So chariots of the gods is divided into 12 chapters and it has a little intro as well. And I thought I would break them down chapter by chapter. I'll talk about the themes and the arguments and maybe a example or two from each chapter. And we'll just break it down that way. So we have a really good idea of, of the content of chariots of the gods. Cause I think so often we just kind of say chariots of the gods and we move on and maybe we know one or two famous examples, but we don't know the nuts and bolts of the book. So I thought I would just break them down having having read the whole thing and taken notes so you guys know how this goes. So the intro comes first and the intro is really important because it gives us three ideas, three central themes that pump us up as the reader. So Eric von Dyneken starts and he says, first, that you are courageous for reading this book. You have real courage. Okay, it takes courage to bust out of the themes that you're used to, of the narrow mindedness of your world and really become the higher person that you are. Right. So it takes courage. Second, Eric von Dyneken is certain of what he talks about. And you see that even in the intro. It's like this happened. You know, there are ancient aliens 
ancient aliens were astronauts. It's not 90%. It's not 79%. It's 100%. Finally, archaeologists are small-minded. Okay? Archaeologists, their minds are not open. Okay? They're just nerdy eggheads. You know, they are just stuck in their ivory towers with their data. They don't see the forest for the trees. You know, they don't, they don't take on these truly large ideas, but we will, right? That's where Von Dynakin goes with the intro. So he set you up, you courageous person. Then we go into the chapter. So I'll give you the name of each chapter and tell you, tell you basically what's in it. So chapter one, are there intelligent beings in the cosmos? And here Von Dynakin is telling us simply that, look, the universe is huge. Okay, there's got to be others out there. There's got to be other intelligences out there, right? The, the universe is just too massive. There must be more. And I think, see, most of us can agree with that. Von Dynakin is being very smart in, in drawing us in with a very simple idea of like, hey, man, universe is big. And we know there must be other things out there. Okay. Okay, cool. Chapter two. When our spaceship landed on Earth. Here, Von Dynakin is delving a little deeper and he's reminding us that, hey, look, doesn't science fiction become real over time? Don't you notice that? Right. That, that we can think up these big ideas and they tend to become realities, you know? And this is also where he he pulls in not only does sci-fi become real, but you see, in order to explain the fact of ancient astronauts having been here millennia ago, primitive people drew them as gods, right? They would say, oh, these were gods, even though in reality they were ancient astronauts. And so that's why you have these rock art images that yes, they look like gods. And a lot of times, of course, these rock art images are very symbolic and open to interpretation. But for Von Dynakin, it's like, no, no, no. These are images of astronauts. See, and Von Dynakin's going to use that as proof. So chapter two brings us again this, this idea of ancient astronauts. Chapter three, the improbable world of the unexplained. Now, Von Dynakin is going to open this with telling you that, look, archaeology, man, indirect guesswork at best. OK, don't you know, it's only a hypothesis. <laughs> and this is something I've we've all in the scientific community heard a hundred times. Right. They're, they're narrow mindedness and they're only a hypothesis. What do they know? They need to open their mind. OK, this is hearkening back to what he said in the in the introduction. Look. Let's be creative, okay? Let's be creative people, unlike those narrow-minded, boring archaeology losers, right? We're going to be creative, and now, with our creative brain, let's look anew at these examples. And this is where the examples really start flowing. So now we have the Nazca lines, you know, as ancient alien landing strip. We have the stonework in Peru at sites like Saxawoman that uh, for Von Dynakin are just too precise for human hands to ever have made. Right. This this kind of thing. Uh, he uses examples of big number math. Why would ancient cultures even need to count really, really high? Right. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm just I'm just reporting the facts here, you guys. Um, the, the doubling down of science is narrow minded. Right. And these images on rock art. Look, these are real images. OK, these are not symbols. These are real images of what Von Dynakin sees as ancient astronauts. Right. So that's that's what you get in chapter three, which is going to bring us to chapter four. Since we've set up the whole ancient astronauts thing, chapter four was God an astronaut. So here, Von Dynakin's like, look, the Bible is full of imagery and stories that, that we don't see in our modern world, right? So the idea of giants, look, giants were real back then, okay? And, and the idea of, of angels, well, angels, those are actually aliens, see, but, but the people of those primitive times, they translated it, even though they were aliens, they translated it as angels because that's how they would, that's the only way they could make sense of it. 
And when you see destruction every so often, like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and these kind of famous biblical references, that destruction, those are nuclear bombs, right? Going off. Okay. That's, that is destruction of a nuclear ancient astronaut sort. We're also going to bring up the flood here, right? Von Dynekin's going to talk about the flood, uh, that trope that you see in so many religious texts. And it's like, look, the flood, well, you see, human beings are basically an ancient alien breeding experiment. And every time they get it kind of wrong, they would flood the earth out and kill everyone and start again. So that's what the flood really is, actually. It's the wiping out of ill-conceived ancient alien breeding experiments until they got it right. So if he's got you this far, he's going to move you on to chapter five. Fiery chariots from the heavens. Now here, he broadens and doubles down on the uh, breeding experiment thing. And he also talks about spacecraft. He talks about the moon landing that like, hey, look, even 50 years ago, the moon landing would have been seen as just impossible, but we did it. He talks about that there's floods in various other religious texts like in Gilgamesh. He, he touches on the Mount Ararat thing for Noah's Ark. And really, I, I uh, this this chapter is a little bit more disjointed. I think it would work better just as part of chapter four. But from there, he's going to move on to chapter six, ancient imagination and legends or ancient facts. So here he's really doing more of the same. The last couple, couple chapters, I would say four, five and six are just like uh, they're all talking about the same stuff. I would really collapse these into, into one chapter. So we're going on about the Maya numbers and calendar again. You know, how could these people by themselves figure out these high numbers? They must have had alien help, right? We, we're going to talk about the Egyptian sunship. You guys might have heard of the solar ship that was found right next to the Great Pyramids. But this wasn't just a ship for the Pharaoh on the Nile. This was a spaceship, right? Capable of of flying for millions of years and, and interstellar transport. So pretty cool. And he also talks about the, the iron pillar of, of Delhi in, in this one, which is a, which is a pillar that is, is known for not rusting very much in a very, very long time. So again, this is just sort of a list of, of examples here that, that really just goes with, with what he's been talking about in the last couple chapters, which then brings us to chapter seven ancient marvels or space travel centers, right? So you know what this is at this point. He's, he's going to continue going with like, look, if we're so narrow-minded, I can't believe we don't see these as space travel centers, right? And he's going to talk about things like the Egyptian pyramids being aligned to the stars, which they're not. That's one that comes up so much that people believe, you know, or they believe a portion of it, but it's just not true. The idea of mummies as frozen astronauts. I'm just reporting the news, my friends. There's more denial of archaeology because you got to keep you got to keep the pressure right on how how archaeology just just gets these things wrong. There's again, it's just more these last several chapters. Very, very similar. Now, chapter eight. Is Easter Island land of the birdmen. And this one. It's just very, very simple. It's, it's in the title. It's like, hey, look, the people of Easter Island, who are the Rapa Nuians, they call their island Rapa Nui. Like, look, the Rapa Nuians couldn't have possibly built the Easter Island Moy. Those are the statues, right? The Moy. They couldn't have done it without help from space travelers. You know, and so, please, isn't, isn't there the obvious fact right there? And that, that's really it, right? That's, that's sort of straightforward. And, and you know, this, this idea that, that that just must happen. Like, can't think humans on this little island could have done it themselves, which they totally did. But you can see, and, and now how he's playing a little maybe on your, your ideas of how maybe your culture is better than other cultures, right? He's, he's pulling you into your own ethnocentrism. He does change tack a little for chapter nine mysteries of south america and other oddities where he really spends time on what's probably his most famous example of all which is the maya and king pakal pakal's tomb 
Now, Pakal's tomb is in Palenque. I've been there. I visited it. It's amazing. Pakal was a very powerful ruler from the, oh, the 600s AD in the Maya world. He was known as a, as a three cartoon lord. A cartoon is 20 years. So he ruled over 60 years. An amazing, powerful, incredible person reduced in chapter nine of Chariots of the Gods to an astronaut. The idea being that on Pakal's tomb is sarcophagus lid, which I highly recommend you Google Pakal's sarcophagus lid. It's just an incredible work of art. And in the center is Pakal carved as a young Lord. And he's sitting down. He's kind of sitting down, but he's, he's stretched out and his hands are up. And I could tell you the real imagery. It has to do with the world tree that's coming out of him. It has to do with him at death. It has to do with corn. It has to do with his own rebirth. It has to do with him located between the, the world of the sky, right? The floral paradise and Shabalba, the underworld beneath him. There is so much amazing symbolism and stories there. Oh, I could do an entire podcast just on that. It's incredible, you guys. But here, well, this is proof of him as an astronaut waiting for takeoff. Oh, this amazing thing, right? Reduced to, oh, he's an astronaut. And this comes straight from 1969 because in 1969, you're going to be seeing all these imagery of the Apollo astronauts and they sit in a similar way, right? In the Apollo spacecraft. There's no relationship, but that's what chapter nine is all about. That's the central thing, right? That's probably your most famous example from the whole book. Chapter 10, the Earth's experience of space is really just talking about technology and UFOs. This is where we're going to bring UFO sightings in. So he has a ton of examples of this UFO was sighted here and this UFO was sighted here, right? There, there's a, a big list of that. And that's, that's really what this is. You know, look, hey, we, if we see UFOs now, of course they would have come in the past. Chapter 11, the search for direct communication. This is about how we send radio waves out. And this is true that we do this. If, if you guys have seen the movie Contact, the Jodie Foster character is working at like the Arecibo radio you know, wave station and they're sending radio waves out to the stars and listening at the same time too, listening for any communications from alien life. And Von Dynikin talks about that, but then he, he doubles down. And he goes, you know, radio waves are too slow. The only way this must be truly possible is through mental communication. Right. The, the idea that, that ESP is used in order to have instantaneous communication across the stars. It's the only way it can be done. So that's what this chapter is about. Right. We're ending up with, look, you have to have mental communication to make it all work. So it must be. Then finally, chapter 12 is simply titled Tomorrow. And in this chapter, Von Deineken talks a lot about computers, about technology, and this idea of futurology, kind of the art and science of analyzing what might happen in the future. And I do have to give it to the guy. He's very pro-future. He's very upbeat. So at the end of Chariots of the Gods, you really feel good, you know, because Von Deineken is saying, he's like, hey, isn't the future going to be amazing? Look at how much stuff we've already figured out. Look at how much stuff we've already experienced. Look how many possibilities there are with our new open mind. You know, not like those loser, narrow-minded archaeology fools. With our new open mind, look at what we're going to be able to do. And it's really exciting. And you want to go with it. And so in the next segment, we'll talk about what the editor would say about Eric Von Dynekin's Chariots of the Gods. See you back in a minute. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. 
coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 95, part two. And we are talking about the Chariots of the Gods, Eric von Dynekin's book. And in this part, I thought I would talk about it as if I was an editor, as if I was in a room with Eric von Dynekin and I was telling him what I would want to see for the next draft, right? In the previous part, I gave a breakdown of how Chariots of the Gods was written chapter by chapter and gave you an entire summary of what the book is. So now I'm sitting down with Eric and I'm like, okay, here's what I would do. Here's what I would say to him. I'd, I'd say, look, Eric, I, I appreciate your writing style, but I do find it a bit disjointed and a bit jumbly because he does have way too many examples. And this is what he's doing is trying to show how right he is with how many examples is like, Oh, you don't believe in ancient aliens. Well, here's 30 examples. Right. And as an editor, I'm going to say, look, Eric, too many examples. You need to tighten this. You need to boil it down to two or three examples per chapter max. And you see in that world, that is going to be tough because it's going to start to show the holes, right? You have to, you have to touch and go. With your examples, if you're talking about something that's ultimately not going to work out well for you. But as his editor, I would say that I'd be like, dude, bring down the examples and tighten. I would also say that he restates the same thing over and over and over. Right. And I think you probably saw that in the previous segment where I was constantly like, oh, chapter six is this. And you'd hear me say the same thing, you know, kind of lots of times. It does get a little overdone. I would not, to be honest, I would not say it was boring. I would say it was repetitious. But as my old advisor used to say, you know, if you say it, say it again and say it one more time, they'll tend to get it. So his point comes across no matter what, right? This idea that there were ancient astronauts and they came here, you know, these aliens and they influenced humanity. It, it really does play like if any of you have seen the movie Prometheus, the beginning of Prometheus. Now, me as, as a movie, I didn't think Prometheus was ultimately that great, but I love the beginning. And, you know, the, this idea that aliens come, maybe even their DNA, you know, somehow into us. But that's his point. Right. I so I would want him to focus more, though. I'd want him to provide more of an outline. And maybe that sounds like, like a, you know, like a like I'm slogging him a little bit. I think he could really help help himself out by outlining his ideas and again, narrowing, focusing. It would be better. The length is actually fine. It's not too terribly long. I will admit that I did skim only the parts where the cultures, the, the backstory of the culture, like as a Mayanist, I don't need to hear the backstory of the ancient Maya, but I did do my due diligence. My friends, I did read this thing. So my meaning there is, well, while I skimmed one or two things on the mic, because I knew that I didn't need to. The length was fine. The chapter numbers are fine. He's got 12 chapters plus his intro. Hey, in terms of the organization there, that's that's cool. It's not too cumbersome. It's not too much. It's not too little. I think his chapter numbers are about right, although they're a little repetitious. And something that's actually can be tough, his voice as an author, I think is pretty good. Let's be honest. I, I think it's a sounds like a singular person talking to you. And so, hey, good job, Eric von Dynakin. Your writerly voice is nice in Chariots of the Gods. What's funny is another one of my, my feelings in reading the whole book is, is that it really needs an editor. It really needs editing. But actually, in truth, it was heavily edited by an editor. And that part I was actually really surprised about because it doesn't feel like it. 
you have things like really short paragraphs, you know, that you just have a lot of little side ideas thrown in there. Oh, but what about this one? You know, kind of like that. It, it, it just it feels like a rough draft. But to, to find out that it had been extensively almost rewritten by an editor at one point, I was I was surprised. It doesn't it doesn't feel like it. I would say, I mean, at this point, if he was writing Chariots of the Gods Part 2, it definitely needs newer research, right? You're going to need newer examples there, which he obviously doesn't have. And some of the old examples are just long, long let go of. So his themes do come across. Again, you hear of them many, many times. I would say that he hits his top three in the intro. As, as I said before, this this idea that like archaeologists are, are full of it, that you're uh, full of courage if you read this and, you know, they're all of this that I'm about to tell you are truisms. But along with that, themes that, that hit you when you read Chariots of the Gods are that indigenous people are unenlightened and thank God ancient aliens came to show them the way. And you can see how there's a, a big undertone of kind of cliches and racism and disrespect in that that idea, you know, that that look, indigenous people, they just, you know, they just don't know. And so thank God the aliens came to let them know. You get a lot of that. The idea that it can't be coincidence. Look at these things. Look at how they relate. No, no, no. This is not coincidence. The idea that anything is possible. Right. Look, just open your mind, you close minded fool. Yeah, speaking of closed-minded archaeologists, closed-minded, right? Oh, looking at that same old stuff. Yes, I get it. Corn is from Mesoamerica. Certain things cannot be made up, right? Oh no, they're just they're just too fantastical. Can't make that up. Too wild. <laughs> Religious mythology as literal fact. Right. No matter how outlandish, whether it be a flood, whether it be a dragon or sea creature or giant, that these are real reports of real things that happened. That science fiction shall become real. Whatever we can dream shall happen one day. And again, uh, cross-cultural similarities, which some examples here, he'll talk about things like Jade. Jade being used in the Maya area, jade being used in China, and how that must mean there's a China-Maya connection. Rock art throughout the world showing things that are obviously alien spacecraft, right? You don't think it's that? Well, narrow. The idea of pyramids, pyramids being built, right? Throughout the world. That can't be coincidence. They're pyramids. This is the idea of extreme diffusion that we talk about in archaeology. The idea that, yes, things do diffuse throughout time. You can see this, like I just brought up the example of corn. Yes, corn was domesticated in Mesoamerica and it diffused over time, meaning it moved, you know, thousands of miles north. You find you find corn in North America. And so it's that is a true thing that happens cross-culturally is that when somebody comes up with a really good idea in one spot, it, it is picked up by the neighbors and kind of so on and so on. But a common trope in pseudo-archaeology is extreme diffusion, where it's like, oh, everything's interconnected. And you, all you have to do is find the, the smallest little tick of something, and it must be connected. The idea of the Maya jade and the Chinese jade having any kind of similarity is just completely ludicrous that is not true not even a little true it's not true at all the only truth you can say is yes they both have jade that can be found in those areas right but there's no relationship same thing with pyramid is the pyramids is the old school classic right are just the fact that you make this thing that has a wide base and a pointy top in your culture and the other culture like a common one is the maya and the egyptians Yes, they both built pyramids, but that's all you can say that's similar. The, constru the construction techniques are actually completely different, right? Egyptian pyramids are built basically in one phase, meaning there's nothing. And then they take 20 years or so and build an entire pyramid for a singular idea of burying a pharaoh in it, you know, and that and that's it. They, these are funerary monuments to the to a singular pharaoh for the Maya area. 
Pyramids are built in a completely different way. They have an onion skin approach where they're built over time, where they built a little pyramid and they put, you know, an ancestor in there. And then maybe 20 or 30 years later, they add on to it. And then they maybe they put the son in there. And then 20 or 30 years later, they add on again. Maybe they put the grandson in there. Maybe they don't. But the Maya pyramids are built sort of in a rebuilding way where they build on and on and on and on again. So if you look at these archaeologically, they're very, very different structures. Right. I like to say for the Maya, you get much more for your money because as you dig in, you find earlier structures within the uh, largest one on the outside. Whereas in the Egyptian situation, it's, it's pretty much one singular building episode. They are both funerary monuments. You could say that, but there's no connection. Right. I wish. And so much of this rotates on our wants right? And our, what we would like to see, you know, don't you want there to be a connection between the Egyptians and the Maya? Sure. That would be awesome. But there's not, not even a little, not at all. Doesn't it suck to have me say that? Don't you have this feeling of like, ah, King Kelly, you egghead. Shut up, dude. Right. Isn't it a bummer? But you have to go with the facts, right? And in the facts, is where the true interest comes. And I think you see that even with when talking about Maya pyramids. Isn't it fascinating that they're built in this onion skin way? Isn't it fascinating that you can dig in and find earlier layers of history as you go inside? You can find earlier rulers as you go deeper and deeper into the pyramid. It's fascinating. It's much more exciting than just saying it was aliens. And with that, I'll be back in a minute with segment three, The Rant. Hello and welcome back to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 95, and we are talking about Eric von Deineken's Chariots of the Gods, and we are reviewing the book and uh, talking about not, not only a flat sort of uh, summary of the book, which was the first part of this, and then maybe what, how an editor would talk about the book, you know, what to improve in the second part. And the third part here, this is the rant. How do I feel? So, hey... Kinkella, what do you think of Chariots of the Gods? Well, the short answer is it's terrible. Now, beyond that, do you want a longer, a, a longer uh, summary there of how I feel? It's a slog fest. It's outdated. It's boring in certain parts. It's see-through. It's embarrassing. But then you're like, why, why, why should we read this? So, there's two, I would say two important reasons. First, just as a historic document, as I said up top, right? Just check this sucker out in terms of the history, because it brings you back to 1969. It brings you back to the mind of 1969, right? And also why, why else do it besides the historic document? Because this still influences pseudo-archaeology constantly. So we want to know that of which we fight against. Right. So we are only foolish to not know chariots of the gods. We want to know what we're fighting against. And, and it's sad, though, at the same time, because it's just just a horrendous pile of junk. Right. It's, and it's not even written very well. I was trying to be nice, you know, as the editor, because, you know, an editor would be like, hey, Eric, look, this part's good. But overall, though, in terms of this multi-million selling book, it's just it, I swear to God, you guys, it feels like a first draft. You know, there's these short paragraphs and they're just stuff shoved in there and it, it hangs together, but it, it makes it to the end, coughing and sputtering, but it makes it, but it's just, oh man, it hurts me on the inside. So what, what we want to realize and, and what's so hard is, is there is not a sliver of truth in this. And that's part of the evil of this book. Is because we as humans, when you hear that stuff, first, it totally plays to our wants, right? Don't you want there to be an Atlantis? Hell yeah, I do. Like, let me see by show of hands, how many of you out there would prefer a world with an Atlantis to one without? All the hands are going to go up. We want there to be an Atlantis because it's cool. It's fun. It's a great story and it's interesting, exciting, right? But it just didn't happen. It's not there. The chances of it are zero. Not one, not 7.5, zero. 
And I know it kills you. I know it hurts you. It hurts me too. And I know, again, you just want to be like, shut up, egghead. Right. But it's just the easy way out. Okay. It's just the easy way out. And that's the thing. That's why these things need to slam archaeologists early on. That's why it's in the, in the prologue. Right. How archaeologists are so narrow minded. They have to do that because we're the warriors that are going to take them down. Right. So they have to pull the rug out from under us early on. Oh, those narrow minded eggheads. No, you're you're just completely full of it. Reporting whatever crap that you come up with as fact. See, that's the other thing. It's they're always certain. They're always 100 percent. Oh, it happened. Right. We as archaeologists, because we're, you know, enlightened, cool people. We go, well, you know, our our best guess at this point, based on real data, is that it happened in this way. You know, oh, and, and archaeologists are too giving sometimes. Well, you know, I could be wrong. And, and of course, pseudo archaeologists jump all over that. You know, oh, well, you know, he said he could be wrong. I never say I could be wrong because I'm 100 percent right. Again, just full of it. The stories are so see through. I think if you guys read Chariots of the Gods, that's the thing you will be. You'll be honestly, you'll be bored for a lot of it because you've heard these stories redone and done again on shows like ancient aliens who honestly does them a bit better than the original source material. The stories themselves, they're, they're going to feel very see-through, you know, you're like, what? Okay, wait, wait. And it's hard. Sometimes, sometimes almost your scientific brain gets the best of you because it's hard to follow Eric von Dynekin's BS story because the science is so much easier. It's just, oh, again, it's just, you know, do, do I recommend it? No, except, except uh, as a historic document. Now I will say if you've seen, if you guys have seen once upon a time in Hollywood, right. Which is one of my favorite movies. I, I just think it's, I just think it's fantastic. A copy of chariots of the gods belongs in once upon a time in Hollywood. Okay. Once upon a time in Hollywood is about 1969 and you know, the, the, the Manson killings and everything chariots of the gods goes right there. I mean, I, it's like Sharon Tate should be reading a copy of chariots of the gods. You know, the Manson family should have a copy of chariots of the gods, you know, out, out, out in their, out in their hideout. Right. That's where it belongs. It belongs in that, in that, in that moment, Leonardo DiCaprio's house at chariots of the gods. Like, like he should definitely, have a copy of, uh, sorry, Leonardo DiCaprio's house in um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Should definitely have Chariots of the Gods sitting there, right? So, somewhere on, on his bookshelf. It just, it, it fits the vibe of that time so well. That sort of out there, kind of the hippie movement's been going for a while. It's kind of burning out. It's getting really weird. It's getting kind of negative with, you're going to have the Manson family killings and then, you know, couple months later in 1970, you're going to have Altamont where the Rolling Stones do that sort of final show that really kind of closes the 60s in, in more tragedy. And that's where this crazy book belongs right in there. Right. And, and it should have died with everything else, every other far flung crazy thing from that time, but it didn't. Right. And you know, why didn't it? I think it's because we just keep telling the stories, right? A lot of those other things from a lot of the more crazy stuff from, from that time period kind of died out and nobody cared and everyone knew it was crazy, but we want this one so bad. You know, you want ancient aliens so bad. How many of you want aliens? I do, right? We just got finished. I mean, there were hearings on, on TV the other day, you know? government hearings about aliens oh man never ends but again we we it's it plays to our wants you guys it plays to our wants and i don't get to do that as an archaeologist right i have to take the hard road of playing to the facts and adding to our shared history of the past of, of life on earth with facts and that's the hard road so i just get extra pissed at this because it it pulls the rug out from under me and just gives you guys utter bs and you've heard it so much that there's a part of your brain. See, and I don't fault people for this. Like if I come up with, if I say something like, hey, Atlantis, you will say, yeah, I know there's no, no, no such thing as Atlantis, but I heard this thing, right? And you're not even really quite sure what it is, but you heard this thing about Atlantis. You're like, well, maybe, isn't it kind of, 
Isn't there part of it that may be kind of true? No. But see, that that's what's so insidious about this stuff. It gets in your brain and it stays there. It reminds me of that creature in Star Trek 2. You know, the one that Khan puts in the ears of the two guys early on. Chekhov gets one in his ear. That's what Chariots of the Gods is like. Chariots of, of the Gods is the evil creature from Star Trek 2 that goes into your ear and eats your brain slowly and enables mind control on you. That's what it is because it puts that little doubt seed in. And that's probably what I hate about it most. Because, you know, if I go, look, you guys, there is no such thing as Bigfoot. You go, yeah, I know there's no such thing as Bigfoot, but I heard a thing. (sighs) And it's because you heard heard a lie. Okay, You, you heard an overt see-through stupid lie you know and and it's so hard to admit it because we all want to engage in magical thinking we all want this stuff to be true so you just it's hard even for somebody like me right it's it's hard to be like you know andrew this stuff isn't true at all not even a little not even half of one percent it is false and to really take that into my soul to really take that into my bones is very difficult you know, because again, you, you want it to be true. Eric von Dyke has so many terrible examples in this, right? We we went over the Pakal thing, Pakal as an ancient astronaut, which is just so lame. And it also just, uh, it, just it takes away from the depth and, and interest and excitement of Maya religion, right? Maya religion and mythology is so rich, but it gets, it gets slapped over with this much worse Stupid, lame story of of uh, Pakal as an astronaut. You know some other stupid stories. You know the the idea of of mummies, like Egyptian m- mummies, as experiments in freezing spacemen. <sighs> really, really. You know the um one of them. You, you'll you'll hear about the the iron pillar in Delhi. That's one that comes up a lot. This idea. There's this is the truth. There's this iron pillar, and it's in Delhi. Oh yes, and it doesn't really rust. Right. And it's like, oh, it's magic. It doesn't really rust. It's like, no, it's not magic at all. They came up with basically an alloy at the time and they made it and it it creates a, a little surface layer of rust and it doesn't rust anymore. Cool. Right. There's no there's no mystery in that whatsoever. But I will say to Eric von Deineken's thoughtfulness, they cornered him on the deli thing, on the deli iron pillar thing. And they're like, Eric, this this is patently not true. They just hammered him and he actually went, oh, I know it's not true. It's been disproven. But all the other stuff in my book is true. You see, so if if he has enough forethought to actually discard a a handful every so often, go, oh, yes, you know, that's that that is uh, that is actually not aliens. It it makes him that much more believable. So he has he has 100 percent false lies and BS. But if he throws a few away and says, oh, well, yes, these are indeed false lies and BS. It helps him augment the rest of his false lies and BS. So that's well played, Eric von Deineken. <laughs> and, you know, my last example that I just think sort of shows what this whole book is. This is an example that is like passed over. And I, I'm so bummed. This is one I bet you guys have never heard. He's talking about rock art which he does quite a bit in the book. And at one point he talks about some rock art in Inyo County in California. And this is, these are are places that I've actually been before. They've got some great rock out out there, by the way, this is, this is in the more desert areas of Southern California, kind of Eastern Southern California. And he talks about this one geometrical figure in a cave. You go deep in there and it is recognizable without needing any bit of imagination at all. It is immediately recognizable as a slide rule that, my friends, gives it to you in a nutshell, because a slide rule in 1969 was something that people used to do calculations. Right. This is before they made electric calculators. You have a slide rule. It's like kids look it up. You know, nobody under 50 is even going to know what that is. So this idea that that ancient aliens who came in their spacecraft millennia ago were drawing a slide rule. Really? You know, so, so they, they, they didn't have computers, man. They had to do it. See their ancient alien space spacecraft was done. Uh, it was made using slide rule technology. And it's just like, Oh God, see, see, that's where it's 1969, man. It's the examples that it, they are 
aliens from the mind of 1969, right? So that, that to me just says it all. The slide rule example. It's like, oh, okay. Yes, this whole thing's a crock. At the end of this, uh, man, I'm really glad that I read Chariots of the Gods. I'm really glad we went over it. I hope it was enlightening. And I think it's important that, again, we know that which we fight against and that we that we parse out the good and the bad. You know, obviously, the themes and all that are ludicrous. But the presentation, man, the presentation's pretty good. And so you will have things like Ancient Aliens that is on, what, its 14th season? I mean, think about the presentation of that. The presentation is excellent. And we in archaeology need to take a note from this stuff, right? This pure BS. And we can laugh and scoff and be like, oh, well, I don't believe a thing in Ancient Aliens. Yeah, well, either do I. But what are you going to do about it? Right? How are you going to help? I know plenty of archaeologists who would say, you know, I don't, I don't believe a lick of ancient aliens. Oh, what a bunch of people. I don't believe chariots of the gods. Oh, it's totally silly. But then when you ask them what they would do for the general public to get archaeology out there, they're like, oh, I don't have time for that. I need to work on my academic article. Are you crazy? So we, again, as archaeologists, really need to take that note and be like, you know what? We need to do better. And with that, thank you guys for listening. And I'll see you next time on the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast. Please like and subscribe wherever you like and subscribe. And if you have questions for me, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, feel free to reach out using the links below or go to my YouTube channel, Kinkella Teaches Archaeology. See you guys next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.